So, Knut, the floor is yours to welcome you. But maybe we can have the panelists also be seated. Uh, and uh, Knut is going to kick off the session with uh, a keynote introduction. I'd like to thank him for the partnership we have and for all the great work that you allow us to, to do. Thank you. Uh, so, we see Mark, Lucas, and Miramis, and, uh, and where's George? Here, John. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Nicholas, for the very warm and nice introduction. And um, I will not take up all that much time on giving this keynote, as we have a very capable and interesting panel that will be moderated by John Benson in a few minutes. Uh, but let me just give you three pointers. Um, so this panel is about the shipping and the energy transition and what's next. Um, I think there are three major things happening now that makes a really great impact to the shipping and the maritime industries. First and foremost, we, we have geopolitical tensions rising, and that gives certainly some impact to very unpredictable markets. The second point I would like to make is that decarbonization and ESG is really defining the regulatory and the decarbonization agendas. And the third point is really around technology and not least the question about the new and the better fuels. So keep these three things in mind. If you look at the geopolitical tensions, certainly there has been a short-term priority on energy security over energy transition. And that is creating some delay on the investments into renewables, even though I do think that after this short term, we will see an accelerated investments into renewables, as also that is energy security over time, but a short term setback, you might add. And naturally, this gives a lot of business opportunities also for the maritime sector. Now, my, my second point is really around how ESG is revolutionizing and changing everything. I don't think it's so much about the regulations. It's much more commercially driven, the decarbonization journey that shipping will be on. Uh, and then my last point is really around technologies. And I think we have to face the fact that a lot of the new fuels, and not least the infrastructure, are late and will be in short supply. So for anyone who sort of waits for the perfect solutions to come around, I think we will have to wait at least towards the end of the next decade before we have really carbon-neutral fuels at quantities and distribution networks that will help us move forward. So there are some significant challenges. And um, being very much concerned with safety, I would just like to point out that with all these changes on the fuel side and on the technology side, we will need to train and educate 
between 300,000 to 750,000 seafarers on handling the multiple sets of new fuels that will be used in the merchant fleet. So that's a few pointers for you all to think about. And with that, I think I will close this sort of introductionary comment and hand it over to you, John, for the panel discussion. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. here for now. Um, thanks very much for those introductory remarks. Um, we're here obviously to talk about energy transition and shipping and we have a great panel for that and I'm sure everybody here is well known to most if not all but just if you wouldn't mind if we could just go down the panel and everybody briefly introduce themselves to hopefully provide some additional context for our conversation. Um, Mark if you wouldn't mind. Uh, we, we are live. <laughs> yes, uh, very good morning. Uh, thank you to Capital Link for inviting me. Uh, my name is Mark O'Neill. I'm CEO and President of the Columbia Group. Hello, good morning. I'm Samira Mispalios. I'm the CEO of Diana Shipping Inc., a dry bulk uh, shipping company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. At the same time, I'm the chairperson of HELMEPA, the Hellenic Marine Environment Protection Association, a uh, board member on the Global Maritime Forum. Uh, yes. <laughs> Good morning again. I'm um, Knut Orbeck Nielsen, the CEO of DNV Maritime. Good morning to all. Uh, my name is Lucas Barbaris. I'm a president of Safe Balkers. Great. So uh, I'm going to try to frame this conversation briefly, which also gives me a wonderful opportunity to get in a shameless plug to the satisfaction of my BD teams. Um, in February of 2021, Watson Farley published a thought leadership report. We, the report was titled The Sustainability Imperative. And that report drew on a bunch of in-depth interviews as well as a survey across the industry of approximately 500 executives and, and, and um, participants in the space. These were all related to matters uh, relating to ESG, including energy, energy in shipping um, and very Coincidentally, this week we will be uh, publishing an update to that report, a follow-up, which uh, draws down that information. Um, again, it gives me an opportunity to get in a plug, but I also think while that information taken in a vacuum is quite interesting, what's really interesting is to compare the data we got in 2021 to the data we now have and to spot some trends and to some, I don't think they're all surprising, but I think some of them might be. So. Starting from there, in our initial survey, LNG and LPG were the clear favorites. Around 60% of respondents identified them as an alternative fuel they were considering in the next five years. In this new survey, in our uh, bring down here, only 35% are identifying those two as viable options going forward or that they're focused on. Um, does that drop off in such short a period of time surprise you? And uh, what do you think the drivers of that? So maybe if we'll just start down the line, Mark. Um, yes, well, I, I, I'm just having a flashback. As you were talking, the last time I was here was back in 2018. And it was just after my daughter's 18th birthday party. And I just cleared up the party and then got on a plane to come here. So I, just, I was still in a state of shock. So I, I, I just had a, an awful flashback of sitting on this panel. Look, I, I was thinking that the, the, the title of this uh, uh, the title of this panel discussion, uh, What Next, 
and, and I have to say, uh, where the Columbia Group is doing more and more in the Middle East and working more and more closely with some of the energy majors in the Middle East, and we're seeing an upswing, not a downswing, an upswing in the dedication to uh, extraction and processing of fossil fuels. Do we really believe that given the peripatetic and fragmented nature of the shipping sector, that a fossil-free, a carbon zero future is what is in front of us? And uh, I, I, I'm sorry to say that proposition doesn't stand up to scrutiny, particularly when you look also at the geopolitical situation that we currently face, where you have uh, the relations between the US, uh, China, Europe, India, Russia, uh, ever coming more and more into the fore. Do we really believe that uh, this is an environment in which the Green Revolution can or should uh, take place? And, and equally, do we really believe that the narrative, the decarbonization narrative, is indeed the right one? Decarbonization or net zero suggests no carbon, but is the correct narrative perhaps carbon reduced or emission capture or carbon capture? Uh, I, I think we're all jumping onto the decarbonization bandwagon for all the wrong reasons where the vast majority of the world will simply not be able to go to a carbon-free uh, fuel sources in, in the near future. So I think the narrative needs to change. I think we need to be talking about carbon capture, carbon reduction, better optimization, rather than uh, net zero and, uh, and, and carbon neutral. I read an interesting article uh, over the weekend uh, about the automotive industry. And interestingly, that VW is committing to petrol and diesel engines over and above electricity. Now, this is a massive, as we all know, the VW group is the biggest, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, motor car manufacturer in the world. They've decided to put their bets on petrol and diesel engines, and they're probably not wrong. Probably, if they find the technology to capture the carbon and then get rid of that carbon or process that carbon, then there is a future for fossil fuels, for diesels, for petrol, for HFO, etc. So I think the whole narrative, shipping where next, we have to look in the wider picture. And uh, I think we're in danger of going down the green, uh, the, the, the green revolution or getting on the green revolution bandwagon for all the wrong reasons, bearing in mind that our investments are long investments and we have to make the right investment. And therefore, I think the industry uh, cries out for flexibility, flexibility of fuels, and flexibility which includes fossil fuels, certainly for all of our lifetimes here in this audience, I think. So with that, that as context here, does that drop off identifying the report surprise you, and do you think it might be driven in part because, as Mark says, the market has maybe not embraced the correct narrative at this point, that a, a, a fixed fossil-free uh, solution isn't really the correct narrative to be discussing right now? Um, yeah, I think that the, the thing is we're in a transitional phase, and we're actually discovering uh, things constantly. We used to be talking about uh, a tank-to-wake measurement of the emissions of uh, carbon emissions. Now we're talking about the life cycle of our fuels. 
and the, uh, the well-to-wake emissions. So it's logical that back in 21, when we were considering, I think, and maybe Knut, you know more about this than I do, but uh, we were talking about uh, uh, wake-to-tank uh, wake emissions, so LNG seemed to be the solution because there is um, a moderate reduction of CO2 when you measure it as such, but when you start measuring it on a life cycle basis, LNG doesn't seem to be the solution. So obviously within these couple of years, things have changed and the way we are measuring emissions has changed. Also there is the concern of methane slippage, which is something that still technology hasn't found a way to reduce. I'm very confident that they will find an, a, a way to do that, but for the time being, uh, this is another reason why LNG seems to be less favorable than previously. And one uh, additional cause also, due to the energy disruption that we just uh, talked about, LNG is too expensive today. So even uh, though uh, dual fuel LNG ships do exist, are um, sailing at the moment, um, operators decide to burn uh, carbon-based fuel rather than LNG because it's too expensive and it doesn't make sense. So I think these are three reasons why LNG today is less favorable, but that doesn't mean it won't be favorable in five years again. Mm. Okay. Mike, may I ask you the same question and drawing on the responses we've had, do you think the drop in those results is again around the narrative or is it purely driven by expense or, or perhaps technology and available technology and, and now and uh, prospects on the horizon? Well, um, there's a couple of things. We need to sort of keep the long-term ambition in, in mind because I think everyone realizes that we have to, say, decarbonize the shipping industry. Um, and then that is um, an ambition that we all uh, share and naturally the next generation certainly is a stronger uh, driver for that. Um, the question, the, the really dilemmas is that we have not really viable options today uh, that will make that transition be speedy. So um, if I look now to the order book, there is a nearly 900 dual fuel LNG vessels on order, which is quite a significant uptake of the last few years. Now, um, as Semiramis mentioned, so you will have a benefit of around 25% if you do run on LNG, but that is the problem that none of these vessels currently uh, are running on that fuel. Um, there is um, also, we have to realize that LNG is uh, hydrocarbon, so naturally whatever we can do on the land side, in particular on carbon capture and storage, makes a great, say, progress to move that fuel source into what is called the synthetic LNG or the E-LNG. So um, uh, there is opportunities to go with LNG f also for the longer term. Uh, the problem is naturally the stronger and higher capex. And if you are a big container liner company and you're ordering really big container vessels, uh, the capex portion of, of the dual fuel capability is relatively small, but if you are in the tank and the bulk segment, naturally that initial investment becomes quite significant. 
Um, now, there are also benefits in opting for LPG, also a hydrocarbon fuel gives some savings on the CO2 emissions. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, that hasn't really taken place outside of the LPG segment. But I, th I still think that's a viable option, and certainly on the energy efficiency, a lot lots can be done. But I think the major issue here is the fact that we will see uh, better fuels coming, but it will take quite a long time, and it requires significant investments way beyond the shipping industry, and especially for national authorities, oil majors, energy majors, to provide that source. And then we have the infrastructure problem that I alluded to, that this also needs to be available in a multitude of ports and geographies around the world. So, um, yeah, in short, I think we all would like to see it happening faster, but I think the reality is sort of dictates that this is going to be a rather slow transition and then it becomes really important that we do everything that we can now rather than wait for the perfect or the ideal solution. So that would be my sort of final remark. Interesting. Uh, Lucas, if we could ask you, um, in our report in this context, most, uh, most respondents identified four different alternative sources of fuel as ones that they were considering in the next five-year span. What needs to be taken into account, and, 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 and what are the real main drivers for that? Because that, that just seems like a lot. I mean, it, it just seems to indicate more uncertainty than anything else to me. Hey, look, uh, as uh, people said before, uh, and uh, I share this opinion, LNC look, looked uh, as a very good uh, option uh, because uh, uh, this fuel exists today. Uh, it can be transported. It has a huge capex at the beginning. And right now, it's also very expensive uh, to acquire. Uh, but uh, still, it could have, uh, I mean, about 20 25% lower emissions. And for a 30% the ship uh, is uh, very uh, you could go easily to 50% uh, reduction of CO2 emissions, which is a, a very good target for 2030. Now, the alternatives for uh, all this, uh, uh, I, I would consider, for example, that uh, an, an LNC vessel would be, go would be going with, uh, could go in the future with uh, biomethane, which is also a solution, but again, we, we, this cannot be implemented now. And we have uh, other options which uh, have not been uh, yet, uh, I mean, uh, fully explore, explored. Maybe we will see futures uh, with uh, dual uh, uh, burning uh, methanol, uh, dual methanol uh, ships. Uh, and again, methanol is a gray, uh, it, it comes from fossil. There is effort, uh, but, we but today we have the, uh, such engines. Uh, we may have uh, ammonia ships, uh, which uh, still uh, is uh, one solution, but it's uh, toxic, and we don't have yet uh, such, uh, uh, su such uh, dual fuel engines. Uh, they are in the phase of development. Uh, what is important to understand is that we shouldn't uh, leave uh, all these stories uh, ambition. Uh, we should uh, be focusing and we should try to, to find solutions, because from the moment that we put uh, a price on the air, 
because this is what effectively we are doing with all these uh, taxation schemes that uh, until now we were we have a price for the fuel, now we also have a price for the air that we are using, which uh, combines, makes this a CO2. Uh, the cost of energy will be substantially more uh, expensive, and the cost of transportation will be substantially more expensive. So the solution is uh, to create uh, solutions uh, which will be available worldwide. So this is the other point. Uh, we need uh, to have uh, uh, not only fuels, but to have uh, e-fuels available in uh, networks worldwide. Uh, that will uh, give us the opportunities because at the end of the day, I, I mean, uh, all these uh, companies, uh, say, uh, the shipping companies are just the, the users. We are not the developers of the technology, nor the shipyards. So we need to have all these people to work uh, towards this direction. So new uh, people should be urged to uh, provide additional uh, solutions and uh, also uh, alternative fuels should be reliable uh, in a worldwide scale. So I'll open the floor. Um, another uh, increasingly popular choice are bio biofuels, and that's not surprising. We've heard a lot about them at this conference and you know, lately throughout the industry. Um, it's not unique to shipping either. A lot of industries are starting to identify biofuels as a viable choice, which suggests to me that availability be, will be a, a problem as well as obviously pricing. Do you see biofuels as a vi viable choice and a viable option going forward? Any takers? Oh, <laughs> um, yes, we're actually using biofuels at the moment. I think uh, Safe Bulk is doing the same. It's a very um, easy and uh, popular uh, near-term solution. Uh, however, I don't think it's viable um, because we're competing with other industries and as well biofuel doesn't seem to be a scalable solution in order to supply, uh, to cover the shipping needs. Uh, aviation is very focused on biofuels, and we're also uh, competing with the food industry. So um, it's a good solution for the time being, but I'm not sure if, if it is for the long term. Can I, can I just take up something that, that Knut said uh, earlier? He said uh, we all accept that we have to decarbonize the shipping industry, and it comes back to my point at the start again that we need to change the narrative. That very comment, uh, is it meant to be that we have to de-fossil fuel the shipping industry, or does it mean that we have to reduce carbon emissions uh, in, in the shipping industry? Because if I'm right, or if, if VW are right, and they're committing to diesel and petrol engines as the primary uh, source of locomotion in, the, in, in their vehicles, then the whole narrative has to be uh, massively, massively changed. We have to look at optimization. We have to look at carbon capture. We have to look at flexibility uh, of, of the different fuel types. Sure, whether it's bio, whether it's methanol, uh, we have to be ready for those fuels. Indeed, some of the vessels, if I'm wearing my uh, our ship owning hat for a moment, the vessels that we have on order are methanol ready and always brings a smile to my face methanol ready. What does methanol ready mean? Well, we have to be ready for all of these different fuel types. We just don't know what's out there and we don't know what's coming. And the problem is we have assets that have a 20-year lifespan, probably the worst type of 
uh, asset investment in this world of uncertainty as far as fuels concerned one can have. So one has to be ready for everything. But I, f I firmly believe the future, it'll be interesting to see what Knuth says on this, the future will be uh, the dominant fuel will be fossil fuel, but probably with a carbon capture, a super scrubber, uh, call it what you will, uh, that still allows fossil fuels to be burnt in a more environmentally friendly way. If we change the narrative and say some pollution is sustainable, how does that sit with everybody? That's quite a radical thing to say, but some pollution is sustainable. We've heard that the ozone layer is repairing itself, etc. Do we foresee realistically a world in 20, 30, 40 years' time where no fossil fuels are being burnt? Is that necessary? Is that actually what's required? Is that, is that sustainable as far as the third world developing countries are concerned? I, I really do think that, that we need to uh, listen to what other industrial sectors are saying on this rather than just committing to a... A, a decarbonization route for the sake of it when other industries are perhaps lifting their sights up a little bit and looking uh, at other options. But Knut, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, these are um, interesting discussions, nearly on a philosophical level, uh, Mark. Um, but I think w what we are facing is uh, a, a lot of pressure from stakeholders, and, and that's why I said that ESG really changes everything. And um, I'm, I'm very confident that not only the politicians, but also the commercial side will demand that shipping is improving on its CO2 emissions. Now, what are the solutions to go there? And uh, I, I totally agree that we will have a multiple fuel future. There's not going to be one single fuel that sort of resolves the whole issue, at least not in, in sort of a, a 2050 perspective. So bio is going to be important, but it's uh, again in sh relatively short quantities and it has to be sustainable bio production. Um, and um, carbon capture and storage, I think, is, is vital for the industry, not only our industry, but many industries to have, um, say, a, a better fuel option. Now, some of the more new fuels um, Methanol ready, you mentioned that. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, and, and some also introduce methanol dual fuel engines on board the vessels. And uh, the problem is that it's so difficult to get hold of any green methanol. And of course, some of the big liner companies will be able to do that. But I think for the majority of the 70,000 vessels out there, it's going to be really difficult. Uh, so this will, will take time, but we have to explore all options. But my main point, and that is, uh, you know, shipping emits nearly 3% of the global CO2 emissions, and we transport around 80% of the world goods. So uh, we have to do something, and there is a lot that we can do today. And I think if we are too sort of preoccupied with pushing this question, what is the perfect solution? How can we, you know, get to zero carbon immediately? I think that's the wrong path. We need to look at what can we do today? And we can do a lot. I mean, just on the energy efficiency side, we can still do a lot, fortunately. And then there are a few options that we already touched upon, bio, LNG, LPG, carbon capture, there are many opportunities, and then, of course, we should continue to explore all the avenues around ammonia, nuclear, 
whatever they might be, but some of these options will not be available in the next couple of decades. And that's sort of the dilemma that we are up against. So better to do something now than wait 10 years before you act. And ESG will certainly demand that everyone shows progress in this area. Uh, if I may continue in this discussion, I would say that uh, first of all, uh, what we are doing today is quite right. Uh, so we are trying, uh, we have uh, regulations, uh, uh, CII and uh, uh, EXI and all these regulations that uh, assist in, in improving the energy efficiency uh, of the vessels and the, and the way they operate. Of course, uh, we need to note here that uh, there are substantial limitations on uh, improving the energy efficiency in existing ships. So. A ship has a design, has certain characteristics. We cannot make it substantially be better. Maybe six, seven, eight, ten percent better. We can. We cannot change it uh, all the way. The second point is that uh, so these these regulations are good for uh, the time being, uh, and uh, they are very helpful. But uh, they have limitations. The second, I I want to to make a point about uh, uh, carbon capture, uh, which uh, sounds very nice and interesting. Uh, however, it has, uh, it has to be resolved. There are several problems with carbon capture. I don't know if uh, this technology can be applied in all, uh, uh, in all ships or in a few ships. It, it's, it's quite difficult. We, don't, we need to have a, a very big uh, facilities on board uh, to do this uh, carbon capture. The third is about the future. Yes, it has to be several fuels. I mean, we cannot uh, rely only one fuel because uh, uh, we need to have more fuels. But the question is, uh, which fuels? And uh, of course, uh, we have candidates: methanol, uh, uh, ammonia, uh, which uh, each one with certain advantages and disadvantages. But the question is, do we have e-fuels today? So the effort should be to create e-fuels, uh, and this is quite expensive because I think that uh, the price of a green methanol is uh, twice as much as the price of uh, uh, the fossil fuel. So uh, this would be a very expensive uh, fuel to run uh, if we don't want uh, to put additional uh, inflationary pressures. So, so we've t up till now been talking about fuels, technologies, and, and those changes. But perhaps another area we need to discuss in, in, in the report a huge number of our respondents, over 50%, showed strong support for carbon trading and carbon offsets uh, implementation in the market and view them as critical going forward. You know, perhaps that's a sign that there really is, on some level, a, a change in the narrative or an embracing of, you know, that, that's, not, that's not net zero. That's, that's something slightly different, and, and it, it, it's a value add. But you know, is that a positive step forward? Yeah, I think it, it's a very realistic and, and um, realistic outlook. And, and certainly when we uh, have looked at some of the technologies and uh, IT solutions that are available now, and we're um, putting on a, a, a platform called OneLink Performance Optimization Solutions, which apart from optimizing the whole vessel operation and bunker supplies and alternative fuel supplies and lube supplies, it also monitors, records, and trades the carbon capture uh, or, and carbon emissions on board uh, the, the particular vessels. Really, really important and gets everybody into the right framework as well. I think this carbon monitoring, reporting, 
and trading offsetting is vital going forward. And that's certainly in line with the, the, the changing of the narrative and, and the actual acceptance that it's all about reducing uh, the carbon footprint, not necessarily achieving zero, which may or may not be possible I in our, all of our lifetimes. Um, but, but, but that's certainly a very, very important part of any solution. Do others agree that carbon offsets and carbon trading will be an, a necessary part, at least in, in the very near term? Um, yeah, if I can add, I think it is, an, it is a necessary uh, um, measure in order to change the mindset and to start measuring the cost of our co carbon emissions. However, we have to be a bit careful with carbon offsets. The main disadvantage is it's uh, taking money out of the shipping industry and placing it somewhere else, maybe in the uh, forest in the Amazonian or in Africa, in a different uh, forest. So we have to be very careful with carbon offsets that the money is returned back into the shipping industry so that we can reinvest and uh, move the technology advances into our, for our favor. Do you agree, are carbon offsets going to be a necessary part of any plan going forward and, and carbon trading? Yes, uh, look, uh, carbon offset is uh, something that is uh, very useful uh, and uh, I think uh, one way or the other through these uh, systems uh, that will be applied worldwide, uh, uh, taxation schemes, etc., uh, we will need to, to live with it. Uh, again, the question goes back uh, to the uh, ability of uh, developing alternatives, and this is uh, the big problem that uh, today, if uh, someone is asked, uh, let's go to a shipyard and buy an alternative fuel vessel ship, there is no possibility to find one uh, that can use at least uh, a green fuel or any, or any green fuel uh, for the time being. And this is, let, let's be quite clear again, I think we, we, we have this sort of splendid isolation, don't we, in the shipping industry. We think we're a little microcosm living by, by ourselves. Carbon trading and offsetting and capture and recording is, is, is around in other sectors in much bigger way than it is in, in, in shipping. And, uh, you know, this will be a, uh, a tradable currency uh, going forward and should be. Uh, and, and multi-sectoral too, so it's 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 happening around us, and I think we, we, we have to you know be aware of that. If if I could circle back to the fuels themselves, setting aside what the fuels of the future will be, I don't think we have enough time to answer that completely on this panel right now. But uh, <laughs> the consensus is it will be more expensive on some level. Um, the survey results bore out that almost a quarter, if not more, of respondents thought that that gap in fuel needed to be addressed by government sub subsidies or investment. But at the same time, 30% saw that ship owners alone will have to foot that bill. What's your view on who should and who will end up paying these differences? Please, yeah. I, I think uh, the party that seeks to benefit the most from it should 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 pay. So there's a sort of a raging debate at the moment, isn't it? Is it, is it the owner? Is it the manager? Is it the charterer? Uh, who directs the, the the vessels in a particular trade? Uh, who takes the most benefit should be the the, the, the payor. Um, I, I'm not sure that's where it's going to land. Uh, I think it will be uh, the party that has the control of the vessel. 
or DOC holder or whatever that, whatever that control element might be. I'm not sure it will land where perhaps it should land, but, but, but it's an interesting debate. I think as everything, the uh, final consumer will pay the bill. So, if we may add here, it doesn't really matter who pays. At the end of the day, whatever we say, the final consumer will pay. Either we say that we will pay or the charter pays. Of course, uh, there will be a two-tier market because if uh, it happens that you have uh, two vessels, uh, the same uh, vessels carrying the same amount, but the one is burning, let's say, four or five tons uh, less fuel, of course, uh, this will uh, be creating this uh, two-tier market. Uh, the charter will prefer the, the four, uh, uh, the, the, I mean, the, the more efficient vessel compared to the last. So the question is not uh, uh, who pays. I mean, uh, nobody's going to subsidize the cost of something. I mean, uh, the consumer who buys a product uh, in the supermarket will have to pay for an additional cost of transportation. This is very clear, and this goes uh, all back. But uh, in terms of shipping, uh, that uh, we are uh, uh, representing uh, shipping uh, companies, it's clear that uh, we want, we need uh, to clarify very, to understand very quickly what are the limitations uh, in our uh, uh, fleet uh, and uh, how we can compete. On what basis can we compete in the future? Because you cannot compete, let's say, for example, having uh, all vessels uh, at the E class. If I may add, uh, I also strongly support that in the end it will be the consumer or the the end uh, end user that will have to pay for this. Um, in this, it's also very important that um, the shipping um, operators are able to measure the CO2 emitted and any other, say, uh, greenhouse gas in the future. And uh, not only on a yearly basis, but naturally on a voyage basis, because if you want to pass that bill onwards, you have to be able to measure and have really trusted data uh, that both uh, parties can agree on. And uh, I think that is something that we will see more and more uh, the need for. And then I would just like, I talked a lot about ESG already, but just, you know, the greenhouse gas protocol, that's where every, you know, many uh, in the chain signs up to decarbonization targets and, and shipping uh, is part of that logistic transportation chain and will be uh, the indirect scope three emissions. So anyone um, subjected to ESG um, uh, trends will have to sort of also work on their logistic partners to reduce the scope three emissions and that's where the, the ship operators and the ship owners will fall. And that's why I also say that this is so much commercially driven and will become much more commercially driven as also those uh, further up the logistic chain will need to sh demonstrate uh, improved performance on uh, reduction of CO2 gases. So um, I think, uh, Knut, I think you're absolutely right. You mentioned ESG at the start. I think it, coming back to this, my, my narrative obsession, I think the narrative is all about ESG, isn't it? And environmental is just one part of that. ESG is so much more than uh, environment and it's so much more uh, than zero, net zero or uh, decarbonization. Uh, the shareholders of the future, Mike, coming back to my daughter, um, be they voters or be they shareholders in companies are demanding it. So, you know, we're the, the, the bandwagon has started 
uh, and is tr is trundling along, and we, we we all will have to get onto it. I think that the challenge is that we, as an industry, speak as one voice and try to influence the course of that bandwagon in a context where our industry is so very different from anyone else's, even from the automotive uh, industry, where they're able to change and be more flexible much more readily than we are, where we have a 20-year asset uh, uh, timescale. So we, we really need to come together, or we will just be passengers on this, uh, on this journey, and that's the danger. So in the, in the last few minutes we have left, maybe we could each do a sort of a, a quick wrap-up question, and I'll, I'll just frame it like this. Um, the responses showed that across ESG goals, um, the expectation that the maritime industry, uh, uh, our, our respondents, uh, would successfully address the general ESG issues we proposed to them had fallen since the earlier survey. It's gone down. They don't think we're going to reach that in the next five years. Um, why do you think that is, and what can we do to increase the likelihood of a more positive response were we to take this survey again in two years? Sorry, well, what are we not going to reach? What, what goals? Issues within the survey, so... Of e ESG. ESG goals, ESG goals in general, yeah. But our context is in, 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 the, shipping, in the energy transition, so... Okay. Is it the narrative needs to change to, as, as Mark said, one that's more in line with expectations and the reality? Is, is was it, in, in the first instance, it was too academic? I, I don't know. I'm not sure I agree with this uh, <laughs> result. Yeah. I think uh, we've been doing a lot of work on ESG uh, issues. Uh, as both Knut and Mark mentioned, ESG is not only about the energy transition and emissions. ESG is about the social aspect and about good governance. I think there's a lot of cultural change within our shipping industry. It used to be a hard to abate industry. I can see visible indications of uh, a positive uh, uh, action towards implementing all these. Um, um, yeah, so I don't agree with your uh, <laughs> survey. Uh, yes, uh, e um, okay, ESG has, uh, of course, uh, two components. The one is uh, environment, the other is uh, uh, society. Uh, I think that uh, we should be balancing uh, these uh, two components, and of course the other is governance uh, and how we govern our companies. I think we, we should be balancing uh, these two, but uh, environment, it, it, I mean, wherever we write uh, this report and we issue it every year, it seems to me that uh, environment plays a, a major role on, on this and what we are doing about that, and I think that we should be uh, instead of just uh, being generalistic in the analysis, we should be focusing on what we are doing and we should try to do actual things and measurable things. So uh, setting uh, targets and uh, standardizing a document or a procedure where we measure what we are trying to achieve is uh, very important. I, I think if I could just add to where is the there that you're talking about? And I think, uh, I think we all have to be conscious of the fact that the geopolitical world is so unstable at the moment, you just get one more change, major conflict or something, and I think the goals, the there, will change. Um, I think the, the shipping industry is wonderfully flexible, wonderfully dynamic uh, and adaptive, and, and wherever the there is, we will get there, and, and we always do, as we've shown through COVID. Um, but I think I, I, I agree with uh, Sarah Maris on my, on my right that we, we've done wonderfully well on the ESG, and I think there's a, as an industry, we've really embraced it and doing fantastically well. So. 
Maybe just one comment from me. Um, I mean, ESG is relatively new, right? And uh, right now it has a capital E and maybe a smaller S and G. Uh, but I agree also that will change. And, and it, it shouldn't. It, yeah. And it will change. Um, but this is still in its early days. And uh, now it's a lot about, you know, establishing benchmarks, knowing where you are. Uh, but then naturally the question becomes how can you demonstrate performance improvements and, and that's when it really will kick in uh, and that's also when commercially it becomes much more important. And then I would just like to say one thing around you know, a general trend in society and that is uh, transparency is increasing everywhere and it's a demand for transparency. Uh, and that will naturally affect also the, the shipping and the maritime industries and we will have to open up and, and show how we are performing on all, all of these three parameters and, and improvement, gradual improvement year by year will be what you will be measured on. To, to that point real quickly in the two and a half minutes we have left, to that point on transparency. Is that transparency within the industry itself? We've seen a lot of examples of tie-ups, whether it be shipping companies with energy or private equity or, or other operators within the chain, and we've seen some of the largest shipping companies dedicate huge resources to this and, and, and really find advancements uh, for the positive. Is there an obligation for that, those advancements and the, the, those successes to be shared within the, within the industry? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, uh, you know, as an industry, um, we're probably behind in a lot of areas. Take human resources, for instance. Um, most, most, most shipping companies still have personnel departments and, and uh, human resource management is something that's been catching up in the last uh, few years. We are catching up. We are becoming more sophisticated. We are um, partnering up with more sophisticated partners and, and that's to all of our benefits and to the industry's benefits. Um, and we're doing it rapidly and dynamically as well and, and really embracing a lot of this change because we see that as the way forward. Yes, I agree. Um, it's very important. Uh, in order to achieve our goals, we need to collaborate. We need to reduce our risk, share our risk, and in order to do that, we definitely have to uh, work together with uh, energy companies, uh, charters, shipyards, uh, anyone down the supply uh, value chain. So, um, yes, I think it's necessary to go ahead. And uh, a, a major component to successfully do that is transparency. Um, I will make this very short. I've said many times that the, the true fuel of the future is collaboration. So I think that is where we need to go. And um, it's also collaboration beyond the maritime industry. I mean, we talk about capital markets, but certainly also with the energy suppliers and the distributors is going to be important. And not least also public and private partnerships where we engage with governments and, and the Clydebank declaration that came under COP26 trying to establish green corridors is a, a really important step. However, it is quite challenging to get, you know, all of the different stakeholders on board on these journeys. But if we are not starting on that, we will certainly struggle to reach the end goal. So uh, collaboration is truly important. Uh, I, I would uh, like to, to stay on what uh, Knut said uh, just before. And uh, when we speak about collaboration, uh, we may find uh, that uh, 
it's not suitable to do carbon capture in, uh, in shipping, but maybe to do ca carbon capture, for example, uh, ashore and, uh, uh, or prepare a fuel, any fuel ashore and use it in, uh, as fuel in ships. Uh, so I think we, should, uh, we need to see all the global picture of how to handle uh, and uh, refuel our planet, not only the ships, because if you, if you focus only in one vessel which is far away, and you need to establish uh, all these uh, systems, either for carbon capture or for a uh, cryogenic system in order to put uh, uh, LPGs or uh, uh, hydrogen or ammonia, wh whatever you need to put, it's, uh, it's uh, very expensive and, not, and sometimes quite not suitable. But uh, imagine that uh, what we really need is a cooperation, a global cooperation where, for example, you may have carbon capture in a power plant and uh, prepa preparation of uh, a if fuels at that stage, which will be used in shipping. So I think we have a lot of way to go, but we should not miss the target because the target is there and we need to, for our children to be protective and, um, and, and reach the final solutions. Well, thank you, that's our time. So I'd like to thank our panelists for their time and thoughts today and our hosts for putting on such a wonderful event. Thank you. Thank you.